You are listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast, presented by the Star Legacy Foundation, a national nonprofit founded on the belief that every pregnancy deserves a happy ending. Visit us online at StarLegacyFoundation.org. Welcome to this episode of Stillbirth Matters. My name is Lindsay Wimmer. I'm the Executive Director of Star Legacy Foundation, and we are here today with a very special guest. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alexander Kofinas. He is the founder and director of Kofinas Perinatal in New York. He's a researcher, an associate professor at um, Cornell, and he's also the author of a fantastic book called The Working Womb. So it's a pleasure to have him here with us today. Welcome, Dr. Kofinas. Thank you, uh, Lindsay, and thank you for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you kind of came into your approach to pregnancy care. Uh, You know, it goes back to 1974. I was a fourth year medical student in Athens. And I noticed that my placenta book had only about half a page I mean, the obstetrical uh, uh, textbook had only half a page about the placenta out of 350 pages at the time. And that didn't make any sense. But then, you know, it just went into the background of my brain. And when I came to the States uh, in 1974, as a research fellow at the University of San Francisco, I did uh, fetal embryology and worked with a PhD in uh, growing embryos uh, ex vivo in the petri dish almost until the heart was able to start beating. And I got an interest in this whole process of embryology and uh, fetal development and so forth. Then when I finished my specialty, my uh, uh, training in Athens and uh, I came to the United States to do my residency I decided to go to obstetrics, although I had an inclination to do surgery in general. And uh, again, uh, I uh, dived into the uh, placenta knowledge, which was not much, and that was again, strange. So it uh, really stimulated me to devote more time and more energy to try to understand this uh, organ. Uh, It is, you know, with sadness that today is 2021, and I'm talking about now 1981, 40 years ago, uh, yeah, 40 years ago, that uh, nothing much has changed. I mean, as far as the obstetricians uh, and knowing about and understanding the placenta, nothing has changed. Now, there has been a lot of knowledge, a lot of non-clinicians, non-obstetricians, mostly laboratory people who experiment with animals. They have made great progress in helping us understand the physiology of the placenta and what can lead to a deranged function. And therefore, although these are animal studies, they can still give us insights into the human placenta, at least studies from uh, monkeys and sheep and mice. Uh, Nevertheless, there's been substantial progress since the ultrasound, real-time ultrasound became available in 1987. And this is when really my interest uh, was amazingly stimulated to devote more and more time on the subject because I was able to see the placenta live. Typically before then, and even now for most obstetricians, the placenta is only seen as a dead organ to be discarded. 
and they know placenta pathology from pathological specimens of babies that have been in trouble or have died. And it is, again, after 40 years, if you look at any ultrasound and I challenge you to find ultrasounds, reports from all over the country and look at the placenta section, there's always a section, there's a field in the ultrasound report about the placenta. And the only thing that you might see, if any, is the location of the placenta or a statement like no previa. And towards the end of the pregnancy, they may you know, classify it as stage one, two, three, in terms of calcifications, which 99%, this kind of calcifications are a normal aging process of the placenta. So it is absolutely stunning to me that still the placenta is so badly neglected and it took 35 years for the NIH until 2015, where they realized, okay, this, this organ is neglected. Let's spend some millions of dollars to help obstetricians understand it is important. And they created the Human Placenta Project. So all these years, uh, you know, I, I felt that I'm, I'm fighting alone, looking for something that nobody cares about. And as recently as a few weeks ago, one of my patients who went to one of the prestigious institutions in New York City for the first visit with her B, uh, and he found out that she was treated by the protocol we use. He questioned her, why are you on all these medications? And uh, the patient said, well, uh, Dr. Kofinas is treating my placenta because I have these problems. And he tries to prevent the complications. And he says to her, well, the placenta doesn't even exist yet at 12 weeks. Now, this kind of ignorance is really totally incomprehensible to me. But that's the state of the knowledge of the obstetrical community today. And that reflects the majority, I believe, based on my experiences. So wow, that's an incredible story. Exactly. That, that's how it has been going on. And I hope with this book of mine, uh, which is, of course, primarily uh, targeting the uh, general public, the general population that has finished a few grades of education and schooling. But it is absolutely scientific and absolutely valuable to any obstetrician who wants to learn something to understand those simple terms and then expand his or her knowledge by going back to the uh, 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 citations we have and even beyond there, expand to additional citations and learn about this organ, which is always blamed for every malady along with God and with bad luck and with, you know, what shit happens. Instead of looking at it, open it up, read it because the placenta is like an archaeological site. Have you ever watched a documentary of an archaeologist digging through ruins and coming up with stories about how people lived there, how people exchanged money, exchanged goods, how they bathed, how they communicated? It is fascinating. The placenta is, is even, it provides all of this stuff to us. We just have to look at it. That's fascinating. Can you? 
kind of summarize or, or tell us a little bit about how your approach is different from from other obstetricians? What what um, what would someone expect um, to be kind of part of your your general or, or standard um, approach to prenatal care that is not something that they get with other providers? Yeah, I mean, the most fundamental thing, uh, Lindsay, is that I do recognize that the placenta is more important or at least as equally important as the baby and that the placenta starts developing in synchrony with the baby. The baby and the placenta are one unit known as blastocyst. And when this blastocyst comes into the uterine cavity to implant and initiate the pregnancy and the placentation process, it is this part that it develops first. The baby is far behind in development to the point that the placenta is completely developed by 24 weeks of gestation and the baby takes another 16 weeks. Now, the placenta has developed the capacity in 24 weeks ahead of time to get the baby to 40 weeks and fully developed according to his or her genetic code. Every baby has instructions in his genetic code that expects the placenta to deliver all the materials for those uh, uh, instructions to be translated into a human being with you know, functionality, with correct anatomy, with intelligence and so forth. So the first thing to recognize, we have recognized is the placenta is extremely important and it is much more vulnerable than the baby and it can be crucially damaged in the first 12 weeks. The first trimester, which as a rule is discarded as non-significant because everybody has this false impression in the mind that a pregnancy loss in the first trimester is usually a genetic loss. There's nothing more fundamentally wrong than that. And I can get back to it in more detail, but the first trimester, there is what we call the placenta develops in two stages, the first trophoblastic invasion and the second trophoblastic invasion. The first one is complete by 12 to 14 weeks. In that invasion, the placenta is searching out inside the uterus for the terminal branches of the uterine artery known as spiral arteries. Those arteries are invaded by the placenta and the placenta literally acts as a cancer that approaches new blood vessels, invades them and expands its growth. That's the placenta. That invasion digests completely the muscular layer of the blood vessels of the uterine artery and replaces them with trophoblastic cells, which are incapable of constricting. And that's extremely important. The baby at that moment hijacks the maternal circulation. The mother has no will or capability of constricting those blood vessels and causing the baby to be lost or anything like that in case that, let's say the maternal body has a stress and the mother will survive if the baby dies. The mother has no capability of doing that. So the baby takes absolute control to the point that if the mother dies, just by gravity alone, the placenta will receive blood and oxygen for about five minutes. 
And for another five minutes, the baby turns on an aerobic metabolism. So in a case of maternal death, we have about 10 minutes to deliver the baby and still that baby be a safe and healthy baby, assuming nothing happened before. So that first invasion is the foundation. It's like time to build a high riser and you dig down whatever, you know, 50, 60 meters to put the foundation in. If that foundation is not strong, if the materials we use are not the expected by code, then the whole building is gonna come down. Like, you know, the building in, in Florida that collapsed in Miami beach, right? You might have heard in the news. So that first part, nobody looks at the placenta. Well, nobody looks at the placenta anytime anyway, but those first 12 weeks, many times the patients don't even make it to the obstetrician. The first appointment might be at 11, 12, 13 weeks, which is the first time to do a Down syndrome test. Now, assuming that all losses in the first trimester or most of the losses are genetic is a huge and almost criminal fallacy because when somebody, any woman loses a baby in the first trimester, there's a 50-50 chance to be chromosomally abnormal. So the other 50% is totally discarded. Nobody talks about it anymore. But if you lose a second baby, that number goes about 60, 70% normal babies. And by the third loss, it is almost 93% of the losses in repetitive losses are genetically normal babies. Nobody talks about it, right? Now, I like to bring here the attention to your audience because most of your audience, most likely if I understood well, they have lost a baby, they had a fetal death of a baby that could survive ex uter, right? So if we are at 22 plus weeks, 24 weeks, the baby is a surviving baby with assistance in an intensive care unit. Then if a baby is lost at that time, they call it fetal death if it's a death in utero. But if the baby is lost before, it's an abortion. For me and all the 40 years of my experience in looking at these babies, if we pay the proper attention, any baby, even at the stage of blastocyst, especially if it's a genetically normal baby, it is a baby that has the full potential God given to him. And unless we do a job, this baby will not realize it. So a fetal loss for me is a fetal loss no matter what. 20 weeks, 22 weeks, whatever. But of course, it is much more painful. You know, I guess for some people, much more painful if that loss happens at a stage where the baby can survive. And that's why we have divided it arbitrarily into a first trimester abortion, second trimester abortion, and fetal loss or fetal demise depends how the baby has been lost. No, that's exactly right. We we hear from families all the time that have had losses in all types and all stages of pregnancy. And it really just depends on that particular family and and their um, kind of that their stage of, of life and, and in their pursuit of, of expanding their family that determines what this experience means for them. And, and it really should not have any biological or, or time um, based element to it. So that's it's really reassuring to have, have your work um, kind of reinforce and support that. 
You know, uh, one of the things, Lindsay, that people don't understand, you know, there's an old saying, uh, uh, there are liars, they are lawyers, without any, any uh, pun uh, intended for lawyers, and damn statisticians. Now, statistics is a tool that can make uh, somebody who is dishonest to generate anything he or she wants to generate. And I say that because when we read uh, statistics in medical journals about, you know, the rate, let's say some countries have a very low rate of fetal demise. Uh, given that fetal demise is considered only for fetuses that are viable, survivable. And then you look at the details and they, they define as demise only pregnancies beyond 28 weeks. So any baby that is lost before 28 weeks is considered an abortion, right? I think to, to avoid completely this confusion, every baby that does not make it should be classified as a fetal demise five weeks, six weeks, whatever, as long as we have a baby that we can identify and measure and say, this baby is five and a half weeks, then it should be defined as such. And that's what, when I see a patient at five weeks, when the baby still does not exist, but only the yolk sac, and I know that next week the baby will show up. Then from this point on, every pregnancy that I lose is counted. And we explain why we lost it. So we lose 5% of all clinical so-called pregnancies in a high-risk practice. Well, that you have to compare it with 25% pregnancy loss of similar clinical pregnancies across the board nationwide. And I would say internationally because the European statistics at least that I can follow uh, are very similar. So by paying attention to this first trimester, because I can see at five weeks, for example, with the modern ultrasound and Doppler technology, I can see the vessels that the placenta has been invading, the maternal arteries, how many are they? I can see if the maternal blood enters the placenta prematurely because maternal blood should not enter the placenta circulation until after 12 weeks, what we call the intervillous space. And this is very important, why? Because the baby's tissues at that stage and up to 12 weeks are habituated to only do well with an oxygen tension of about 30. The maternal blood uh, that enters the placenta is above 70. So such uh, high oxygen content in the maternal blood causes massive oxidative stress and necrosis of the coronic villi, so it damages the placenta. Well, I can see that. Yes, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 weeks, and all the way through. But who looks for this thing? Yes, it is difficult to quantify. It takes tremendous clinical experience, but first, you can never understand this thing on the ultrasound unless you have seen the thousands of placentas I have seen in my life in pathology reports and pathology laboratories because every placenta has to be examined. Something that should be a dictum, should be a requirement, should be a regulation, whatever you wanna call it. There should be no placenta that goes out the labor and delivery room without being examined, no matter how well the baby did. Because that will give us knowledge about the types of placentas that gives us good babies unaffected and the types of placentas that give us in a good, well-controlled, prospective way. And listen to this. 
Since 2007, at the institution where my patients were delivered, mostly most of them, not all, the chairman then was a person that was smart enough and, and he listened to my advice also. And he hired a placenta pathologist that was dedicated placenta pathologist, one of the best. We may have three or four in this country. It's a rare species, truly placenta pathologist. They're like forensic uh, scientists. And every placenta was examined until 2017. At that time, Cornell University bought my hospital. And one of the first things they did was to fire this placenta pathologist. And now when we get a placenta from a pregnancy that was problematic, the report typically is, oh, third trimester placenta, umbilical cord with three cord vessels, and membranes appear to be normal, and that's all. That's absolutely all. And it is the most, I don't know, unbelievable thing to be polite. Well, and I would have to imagine that that impacts your ability to um, investigate some of the losses that, that occur. Yes. Um, and, and, and to guide any future pregnancies for those families specifically. Absolutely. That's a great comment because uh, when the patients come to me and I said, you know, you lost your baby. Now, did they do a pathology placenta or placenta? She says, I don't know. I said, well, they must have done. I mean, I can't believe that you lost your baby. They delivered you and they did not send the placenta pathology. And many times uh, the patients are aware that, yes, uh, they tested the placenta. And I said, what did they tell you? What did they find? They told me everything was fine. I said, okay, get me that placenta pathology. Maybe I can see something between the lines that may not be fine because babies don't die for no reason. I mean, this baby died. And the list that he could give us uh, it to be the silver bullet, uh, I mean, the silver lining is that we can read his placenta and he has left information for us there. So we can utilize for the next pregnancy. And when the report comes to me, yes, there's ton of information that, you know, sometimes some placenta, some pathologists who are not placenta people make an honest effort to do the job and look at the placenta. They do a microscopic analysis, they look for inflammation and so forth. And I can see things that tell me exactly how the baby died. And then I explain to the patient, that's why your baby was small. That's why your baby died from this thing and that thing and that thing, whatever that is, right? But for anybody to say, oh, we don't really know why your baby died, the placenta was fine. And then on the next breath, that MFM would tell the patient, go ahead, get pregnant because they think this thing will never happen again to you. I mean, how in God's name, anybody can say to a patient, I don't know why your baby died when she should have known, but then she knows the future. I mean, I would say to these patients, please run away from these people. I mean, run as far away as possible. They're dangerous. Have you encountered um, any challenges either with your, your colleagues? You kind of mentioned with some of the institutions are a little bit more um, open and um, to, to your approach or some of the things that the tools that you need, but are there, there challenges or, or other barriers that you find that, that would prevent either you or maybe other providers from making this a, a just a standard of care? 
the biggest uh, the biggest problem, Lindsay, is the fact that they don't think the placenta is important. I cannot, I, I cannot, you know, I have a limited number of cases to describe to you the attitude that the placenta is does make any difference. I mean, just just the other day, one of my ex nurses who now works for Natera, the genetics company, she was visiting an MFM in Queens. And uh, he was dealing with a baby that was growth retarded. And uh, my nurse says to him, what about the placenta? And he says, there's nothing to do with the placenta. Placenta has nothing to do with this. Just the baby is just small. I mean, that baby was growth retarded, for God's sake. So this is the biggest challenge. How can I get these people? And frankly, I, I admit I gave up. Lindsay. That's why my book is not for obstetricians. Primarily, it's for women, because I found out that these women, if they have the courage and the strength, they can challenge their doctors and push them to get to move on. So that's the first step, to get them to understand that the placenta is indeed important. Then they have to learn about the placenta. They have to study histology of the placenta. They have to study the normal physiological function of the placenta. They don't even know what kind of placenta we have. I mean, humans have a hemochorial placenta, okay? There are different types of placentas. And the hemochorial is the one that the baby literally invades the maternal circulation. Where in sheep, for example, it's not hemochorial, it's epithelial which means that the two circulations of fetus and the mother go in parallel next to each other. So the blood vessels are intact. So it's a different physiology. The human placenta is unique in that and similar to the monkey and close to the mouse. That's why studies for mice are more, you know, likely to give us information that we can utilize. So they have to learn about the normal and pathologic placenta and look at pictures, look at slides, look at microscopic pictures, and then go through the ultrasound and identify such lesions on the ultrasound. They can be trained, of course. I can train. I have attempted to train. I don't know if I said this story before, but I had an MFM who came to me, she wanted to learn stuff with me because she knows what I'm doing. And after one day she gave up because she got overwhelmed, you know, with the mixing of the information, the mixing of immunology and blood clotting disorders and imaging and the techniques we use to run the equipment. I mean, every ultrasound machine that is used today in a decent MFM unit has the capabilities to see the placenta at a microscopic level and the placenta circulation and the chorionic villi. And I have published that stuff, you know, on, on my paper on placenta thrombosis in 2010. They can copy this paper and try to, to learn. It took thousands of hours of scanning for me of normal pregnancies to understand what is not normal. Because when you know what the normal is, this is the only time you can find what is not normal. And I've been discovering things even up to now. Nobody knows everything and, and I'm sure I have a lot to learn, but you have to know what you're looking for. How can you find it otherwise? And that's the biggest challenge. I mean, I don't know, unless something starts from the get-go uh, from medical school, but for that to happen, the big wing, wings, they have to understand the value of the placenta. But if you look at the ACOG, for example, you won't find any help. If you look at any institution, only the NIH made a move, and that move seems to be almost dead. At, at least I don't see any. I see money flowing into some 
basic uh, placenta science research, which is good for me, but it's not gonna help the clinical application of the existing knowledge. We have already amazing knowledge we can apply and we won't because the obstetricians seem to not have an interest. Yeah, that's that's certainly I can I can hear your frustration, and I think a lot of our families have felt similar um, emotions with with their um, with their through their experiences with with loss and, and um, pregnancy, even infertility and the, the whole reproductive um, stresses. So, um, I think you know one of the the. Um, goals that we have here at Star Legacy Foundation, and we're really trying to promote for families to um, be partners in their care. We know that um, the the best pregnancy outcomes happen when you have um, families and providers really listening to each other and working together to to make sure that uh, no stone is un unturned and that um, we approach every pregnancy as as in depth as possible. I'm wondering um, how how do you uh, work with your your families that in your practice do you um, you know are there certain elements that, that they would get like or instructions or things that they would get differently from at other providers or or how do you encourage them to be part of this process? Well, uh, Lindsay, one of the things that is uh, a uh, travesty in medicine is the term uh, unexplained. Whatever that means, unexplained, let's say unexplained fetal death. It is a very convenient wastebasket where uh, uh, me as an obstetrician, if I tell the mother and the family, this was an unexplained death, I have nothing to do anymore. I should not feel guilty because unexplained connotes that nobody knows what happened, which is not true. If you look at the statistics, basically, in general, from the epidemi epidemiological point of view of the CDC, most of the fetal demises are unexplained, classified as unexplained. Well, of course, most of the fetal demises, nobody even examined the placenta. So how could you explain something? And th there is a psychological thing with obstetricians. They avoid doing autopsies and placenta pathologies because they think that something might be found that will find them guilty. So there's a, a interesting interplay there. But when you truly have a placenta pathologist who understands pathology and an MFM specialist who understands the ultrasound, there's no placenta that cannot, that there's no uh, fetal demise that cannot be detected. As far as I know, there's no unexplained fetal demise. It takes tremendous effort. I have patients who lose their baby at eight weeks and you know, the obstetrician found out that he could not see the heartbeat. I said, do you see any, any issues on the baby? He says, no, I don't see any issues. I said, okay, send the patient to me. And at eight weeks with the ultrasound we have, I can zoom into the baby in high definition and I can see the baby has pleural effusion, has cardiac effusion, has, you know, ascites. This is a telltale story of congestive heart failure. And if this baby's chromosomes are normal, this baby had a congenital cardiac defect. It failed to connect to the yolk sac at the moment the heart was forming at about seven and a half to eight weeks when the two tubes twist to form the four chambers. So now, uh, if you look at some prospective studies that were done, pretty much they have the same, they, they pretty much are close to my experience. 
it's between 80 and 90% of the cases can be explained. Again, uh, these are uh, basically studies that do not take into, into account a high level targeted ultrasound to look for reasons that could kill the baby other than infection. I mean, infection, if you look at the etiologies of fetal demise, everybody is doing a culture, they do some basic blood work for uh, infectious uh, CMV, toxoplasmosis, and so forth. And if they find nothing, they call it unexplained. So that unexplained is a major problem because it's convenient to everybody. And then you go to the next pregnancy for the mother with the anxiety, well, gee, am I a bad person? Did God not want me to have a baby? And what about the next one? And of course, nobody's gonna look for anything to the next pregnancy, right? So it's a double whammy there for the mother. But if I know what happened, any information I can gather from the ultrasound and subsequent pathology, whether it's a DNC or a delivery, then I can look for specific pathologies in the maternal blood system and maternal immune system to identify issues that could be potentially harmful to the placenta. And so my approach basically is that I don't leave a stone unturned, just to put it very simply. I have to explore all the potential conditions that can interfere with placenta formation and fetal development. Now, Chromosomal defects, we identify them. They're all measurable. In fact, out of the 5% of the fetal losses we have, 3%, you know, uh, three-fifths of my babies who I lose have chromosomal anomalies. I cannot do anything about it. So I still lose 2% of genetically normal babies that might have had a, a cardiac defect that we did not identify because the baby was eight weeks. At eight weeks, I can see only the consequences of heart failure, but I don't know what caused the heart failure, right? There's a lot of things we don't know, but at least, you know, I know that 2% of my babies I lose and they're normal and that bothers me and I'm trying to minimize this number as much as I can. But if you don't mind, if you accept that 25%, if somebody accepts 25% of pregnancy loss has been a human thing, that's life. You know, c'est la vie, that's it, okay? They go home, they split, sleep at night, and they don't bother. They don't ever wake up and wonder, you know, why do they miss this baby, right? So the basic, again, approach is that we look at all the pathology. If we have previous information, we utilize it to guide our testing. If not, we do examine all the potential things that can affect the placenta, which is immune system and coagulation system. These are the basic two non-genetic things in the terms of, you know, they don't affect the baby directly, but they affect the environment in which the placenta is going to develop. And they make the placenta be inefficiently, inefficient or totally fail in its formation and lead to a pregnancy failure early stages. And the earliest failure of placenta development or placenta insufficiency is an IVF done with a genetically normal embryo that does not stick. That's the ultimate placenta failure. And unless we see that, unless every obstetrician sees that as such, we'll never be able to solve the problem and move the needle. And I, I don't know if you saw the link, I, I posted something on LinkedIn and some other media, you know, I mean, the latest data show that fetal demise keeps going up. 
I mean, we spend billions of dollars every year to prevent this thing, right? And we still have it worsening it because of course, there are a lot of reasons for why it is worsening. But I think the quality of care we provide also is worsening. It's not, I cannot blame this onto all the mothers because all the mothers are attended today by MFM specialists. Our job is to not lose the baby of a woman who is 45 years old or 55 or 60. I mean, you can't be claiming yourself an MFM and have the, all the accolades. And then, you know, when it comes to saving this baby, you say, oh, the mother was too old. This is fascinating. And I know you've um, provided a lot of inspiration and, and good information and, and support for a lot of, lot of our listeners. And I am so grateful for your time. I, um, I would encourage anyone listening to check out Dr. Kofinas' book, The Working Womb. Um, he also has published extensively on his research, which is also just fascinating reading. So if um, you're interested in, in those uh, papers, I encourage you to, to search those out as well. And um, I, I'm quite certain, Dr. Kofinas, that we will have you on in, in future episodes and continue this conversation. But thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the dedication and, and everything that you um, are doing to, to further our information and our knowledge and our care. Uh, for for women and their babies thank you lindsay thank you for having me on and i will be available certainly i mean this this subject is so dear to my heart it's been all my life basically and uh i i had equally every time that i lose a baby i i stress it i take it personally i have that i have that that identity i i i cannot dissociate myself from my patients and my babies and I cannot see that uh, this could be possible for a physician, at least not for me. Well, that's, I'm sure that's only a small part of what, what makes you so good at what you do. So thank you so much for your dedication. Thank you. And um, thank you so much for listening to the Stillbirth Matters podcast. That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. Contact us at info at starlegacyfoundation.org to share feedback, request support, or suggest topics or guests for future podcast episodes. That's all for this episode of the Stillbirth Matters podcast presented by the Star Legacy Foundation. Contact us at info at starlegacyfoundation.org to share feedback, request support, or suggest topics or guests for future podcast episodes. Mm-hmm.